0: All right, Christ Community Church, if you would go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. We are going to pick up in verse 66 of that chapter and work all the way along to uh, chapter 23, verse 25 this morning. Now, while you're making your way there, I'd like to remind you this is week four of our Easter series in Luke's Gospel. And we are looking to Jesus, our crucified King and our risen Lord. We're remembering that Jesus in his humiliation went to the lowest of lows for our sake to save us, from the condemnation that we justly deserve. And this morning we'll see that Jesus was willing to humble Himself so much that He would endure misunderstanding and mockery and would be undeservedly condemned in our place, all to save us. And we're also going to see that as the risen Lord, He is the Son of Man who sits at the right hand of Father, who rules as King and who will return as King and as Judge, who will do all things perfectly justly in the end. Now last week we beheld Jesus as the perfectly faithful King. He was faithful in prayer, and that prepared Him to be faithful in His suffering, to be faithful when He was betrayed by Judas, denied by Peter, mocked by the soldiers. And we'll see this morning that His faithfulness continues. He continues to be faithful till the end. And this morning we will see then that He is also the righteous King who is condemned by the guilty, and yet also for the guilty for us. And so our key truth this morning is that because Jesus was condemned for our sake, we are set free from condemnation so that we get to live and even suffer for His sake. Let me read that again. Because Jesus was condemned for our sake, we are set free from condemnation so that we get to live and even suffer for His sake. So let's see this in God's Word for us this morning. Luke 22:66. 66 through 23, 25. This is God's Word. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea and from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priest and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this... demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, as we begin with this text, The question we should start with is what does Jesus' death set us free from? This is an important question. This gets at the heart of what the gospel means for us. And what this part of the story teaches us is that Jesus' death sets us free from condemnation. There's no more clear statement of this in the Bible than Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But why? Well, the reason is, as we see here, Jesus is condemned for our sake. He will go to the cross and He will die in our place, canceling the record of debt for our sins that would be held against us. Justice will be done on Him for our sake. Now, in the Bible, condemnation is a very specific word. Sometimes, when you and I think of the word condemnation, we tend to think of, say, self-condemnation. We think of that subjective feeling of, uh, of guilt or shame when we know we've done something wrong. But in the Bible, condemnation refers to something that God does. It's an objective thing. Condemnation refers to God's just and final judgment of sin. It is the guilty verdict and resulting punishment that sin deserves and that God will pronounce when everyone stands before Him on the last day. And the Bible is clear. There are only two places where condemnation can fall. It can fall on us Sinners who deserve it, or it can fall on Jesus, who is the substitute for God's people. And so what we see in this part of the story, as it reveals Jesus was condemned by the guilty, but he's also condemned for the guilty, for us. He was condemned for our sake, and so his condemnation sets us free, so that his righteousness, not our sin, has the final say over us. And so we're going to see that how it unfolds this morning in two parts. We'll see that he's condemned by the guilty and for the guilty. And we want to look and see not just how did this happen? How did Jesus accomplish our freedom from condemnation? But then what does it mean for you and me today? The way we live our lives in everyday life. So let's start with Luke 22, 66 through 71 and see the righteous King condemned by the guilty. Now we last left off with Jesus being mocked and beaten and scorned and blasphemed by the men who were holding him in captivity until the morning would come. The Jewish leaders needed to wait for morning and daylight so that they could have an official meeting. And so once day breaks, the Sanhedrin gathers. And the Sanhedrin was the group, the assembly of the Jewish leaders, the chief priests and the scribes as we see here. And so they gather together, not to figure out is Jesus guilty or not. They already know in their minds, he's guilty according to them. They just need to figure out what charges, what accusations could they bring to Rome to have Jesus killed because they cannot perform the capital punishment execution that they want for Jesus. They just need to make Rome play into their own hand. And so they gather and they cut straight to the chase and they just ask Jesus, tell us, are you the Christ? Now the Christ was the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And both those words mean the anointed one. Now most Jews Um, interpreted the Old Testament as saying that the Messiah would be the descendant of David, but that He would come to deliver Israel from their political oppression, to smash the Roman grip upon them and their land. No one except Jesus understood that the Messiah would first come to the cross before He came in the crown. Even His own disciples saw only the crown. Remember, they thought Jesus would bring the kingdom right away only Jesus understood the Old Testament truly as prophesying a Messiah who would first in humiliation die for his people and then be raised in exaltation to rule. First would come the cross, then would come the crown. Now the Sanhedrin, they know Rome would not care about their debate with Jesus about who the Messiah is and what his purpose is, but they know if they can get Jesus to admit to being the Christ, then they can explain to Rome, well that's not just a religious thing, he's claiming to be a king. And if there's one thing Rome could not tolerate, it would be people trying to raise up their own kingdoms. They would have to take that seriously. Now look though, they asked Jesus this question and look at how he responds in verses 67 through 69. It's interesting, he doesn't deny being the Christ, but at the same time, he doesn't answer their question in a straightforward way. Well, it's not that Jesus is ashamed of the truth or that he's trying to dodge the question, What he's doing is he is first confronting the fact that the Jews don't care about the truth at all. They've already decided for themselves what they want to believe. They don't care about the facts. They have determined Jesus is guilty. And even if he answered to them, they wouldn't believe. And if he asked them a question, they wouldn't engage in any dialogue. All they want is an answer from him that they can leverage to get what they want, which is his death. And so he calls the bluff and he points out their own hardness of heart first. But then, Although He doesn't answer the question the way they want Him to, He does declare the truth about Himself. He tells them that from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. And what Jesus is doing there is He's upping the ante. What He's doing is He's saying, I am the Christ, but I'm the Christ in a way that's bigger than you even imagine." He's telling them that you think you're judging me right now because I stand before you in humility. But he's saying, there is coming a day where you will stand before me and I will judge you in my exaltation. Now how is he making this point? He's making this point by drawing from two very important Old Testament passages. He's drawing from Daniel 7 verses 13 through 14 and Psalm 110 verse 1. Now Psalm 110 was a psalm that pointed to the Messiah. It was a Messianic psalm. And in verse 1 of that psalm, God says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. It was an invitation into God's presence as the chosen ruler who would reign over all things and who would judge all people at the triumph of God's kingdom. And so Jesus is saying that's who he is and when he points to Daniel 7 he's doing that through the title Son of Man. When you and I hear that title we think oh Jesus is talking about the fact that he's truly human, the Son of Man. He's a true human born of the Virgin Mary. And all of that is true But every Jew understood that the Son of Man was actually a divine title. You see, in Daniel's vision recorded for us in Daniel 7, he sees one like a son of man brought before God's presence in the heavenly throne room to receive glory and a kingdom and dominion. And the Jews all knew that that person was divine. And so what Jesus does is he says, I am the Son of Man, I am this divine figure, and I am the Messiah who sits at God's right hand. He puts it together and he says, I am, in fact, the Christ, and I'm the Christ in a way that goes beyond your wildest expectations because He is the divine Son of man. He is truly God and truly human. And He was going to reign as exalted King at God's right hand. He was far more glorious than the the leaders of the Jews could even realize at that moment. But despite all the amazing things that Jesus revealed about Himself, notice that the leaders don't care. They don't engage with the fact that he just blew their categories for who the Messiah would be and what he would do. They just ask, so are you the Son of God? Another title for the Messiah. Are you saying that you're the one that we can now bring to Rome and accuse? And he answers, you say that I am. With this answer, he's not dodging the question again. What he is doing is he's pointing out the irony of what's happening. The Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't care. And yet, By their very handing him over to Pilate to be condemned and executed, they are proving that he's the Christ. They are participating in God's plan even though they don't realize it. They are showing that Jesus is who they don't want to believe that he really is. He is the Christ. And so they hear his response and they say, We don't need to hear anything else. We have what we want. You have admitted to it. We've got what we need to accuse you before Pilate. And so they finish out their hearing. Now, as we look at this part of the story, we can get frustrated with the Sanhedrin. It's so easy for you and me, 2,000 years later, to shake our heads and think, how could they have gotten it so wrong? Jesus stood in front of them. He was unpacking Scripture for them in an amazing way, and they didn't care. Why? But what we see here, through the Sanhedrin, through these leaders and their hardness of heart, is that no facts about Jesus, not even proximity to Jesus, is enough to change someone's heart. Only the Holy Spirit and His power and grace can transform somebody. And apart from the Holy Spirit, the truth about Jesus, not only tends to fail to convince people who are unbelieving, but it often turns them against Jesus. And the truth about Him often turns them against us as well because we bear His name. And when that happens, when the world turns against us because they see the truth about Jesus, often what we want to do in our flesh is we want to clap back. We want to throw down and have a fight. But instead, what we see from Jesus here, what we need to do first, before we condemn the world for their rebellion, we need to ask about ourselves, as disciples and as a church, how are we growing in our own submission to King Jesus in all of life? This question matters. Because when we tend to only focus on critiquing the world for its unbelief and its rebellion, what happens is, over time, that critique becomes words of condemnation. And so what happens then, is that we who have been set free from condemnation in Christ, we wind up condemning people all in the name of Jesus, who has set us free from condemnation. There's an irony there, a wicked irony. And so often as Christians, we tend to be known in the world way more for what we're against, for who we don't like, than for who we are becoming because we're in Christ. And perhaps that's because it is, in fact, way easier for us to critique the world, for being the world, than it is for us to submit to Jesus as followers of Him, to live as subjects of His reign and His rule, and become who it is He's called us to be. But what we see from Jesus' example here, is that the way that we push back against the world's rebellion, is not by condemning the world, it's not by turning to Jesus and saying, can you just make the world a little less like the world, make them like us a little bit more? The way we push back against the darkness and the rebellion is by first turning to Jesus and saying, we submit to you. We see the truth, not because we're clever, but because of your Holy Spirit, you've given us eyes to see, and so before we go and engage with the world, help us first to trust in you, to live as you've called us to live, make us more like you. J. C. Ryle gets at this in, in his commentary on Luke. He says, patience like that which our blessed Lord exhibited on this occasion should teach His professing people a mighty lesson. We should forbear all murmuring and complaining and irritation of spirit when we are ill-treated by the world. What are the occasional insults to which we have to submit compared to the insults which were heaped on our Master? Ryle's point is helpful. He's saying, look, if we've been set free from condemnation in Christ and we see all the scorn Jesus endured to make that happen for us, then why would we bristle at every comment and insult lobbed at us by the world? We don't have to do that. We don't have to correct all of their views and all of their comments. Instead, we are set free to live as followers of Jesus. We don't have to live for our own sake. We don't have to defend our own honor all the time, constantly taking offense at what the world says about Christians. We get to do something so much better. We get to live together as members of Christ's kingdom, as members of His body, His church. And when we do that, instead of constantly using our words to critique and condemn the world, we get to display the truth in a way that's even more powerful. We get to display it in flesh and blood in our life together as a community of God's people. And when we do that, so often as it turns out, the Holy Spirit works through that. And He does that to show the world through our lives that the very same King that the world heaps scorn upon and insults with their words is the very King who delivers us all from the condemnation that deep down we know, we know we deserve. You can look at the world right now and it is talking about guilt and injustice more than it has in a long time. We know all of us, unbelievers and believers, that there is guilt and it lands on us in some way. And even when the world scorns Christ, what we should do is instead live faithfully to Him so that what they can see in us is that in Jesus, there is a better way and there is the way that satisfies the longings of our heart. But we won't get there if we constantly push people away with our condemnation. When in reality, we're meant to live in such a way that invites them to be set free from the only condemnation that really counts, which is God's, and they can find that freedom in Christ. And as we look at the text, we see how, how Christ sets us all free from condemnation if we are in Him. We see in Luke 23, one through 25 now, That Jesus was the righteous king condemned by the guilty and he is also here the righteous king condemned for the guilty. Once the Sanhedrin got what they wanted from Jesus and they got the charges they could bring against Rome um, or against him before Rome, they take him to Pilate. Jesus will be seen by two people, by Pilate who was the Roman governor of the region of Judea and he'll be seen by Herod who was the sort of tetrarch or kind of lesser king of the Galilee region. Now, this Herod, by the way, is not Herod the Great, who we saw in Advent in Matthew 2, who tried to murder Jesus when he was a young boy. This is that Herod's son, Herod Antipas. And Pilate had more authority. He was an official Roman governor. And Herod kind of had this halfway point where he was of the Hasmonean dynasty, which is kind of half Jewish, half Roman. And Jesus will be interrogated by both these men. And we see in verse 2 exactly what the Jews were planning to do. They got Jesus to admit in one way that he was the Christ, and so they come to to Pilate and they say, look, this guy that we're bringing to you, he's been telling people to dodge their taxes, to not give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And we know, by the way, of course that Jesus wasn't teaching that, but they're making up that charge, and then they go for the punch, the killer punch, and they say, also, he's claiming to be the Christ, which they conveniently translate for Pilate means he's claiming to be a king. And so Pilate has to deal with this. He has no choice. He looks at Jesus and he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And he listens to Jesus' response, which is simply, you have said so. Now Pilate looks at Jesus and he sees no threat. He sees no guilt. Pilate has dealt with insurrections. He has dealt with people who have called themselves the Messiah before Jesus. He's dealt with hardened criminals. He has them in prison even now. And so when he looks at Jesus and he sees this humble man who is hated and wrongly condemned by the Jews, he sees no threat. And so he tells the Jews, I find no guilt in this man. But they are insistent. They're urgent. And they say, no, you need to deal with him. He's stirring the people up. And so Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. And so he sees a convenient way just to deal with the situation and pass the buck to somebody else. Because if Jesus is from Galilee, then technically he can be tried by Herod, who is more immediately in charge of that region. And Herod was in Jerusalem, perhaps for Passover. And so Pilate sends him over to Herod. And it turns out that Herod's actually excited about this. He's very glad. He wanted to see Jesus because he's heard about all the signs and the wonders that Jesus has been doing. And so in Herod's mind, Jesus is kind of like a wandering wonder working sideshow. He is sort of like a court jester. He just wants some entertainment, some amusement. But Jesus isn't there to play games. He's there to do the will of his father. And so as Herod tries to goad him into entertaining him and as he questions him, Jesus is completely silent. And so Herod decides, well, if you're not going to give me a show, I'll make a show out of you, Jesus. And he and his soldiers mock Jesus, they clothe him with the clothes of a king, and they send him back to Pilate. But the joke is on them, because the one they mock is actually the very king before whom they will all one day bow. Their mockery reveals the truth, even though they are blind to the truth. But Jesus comes back to Pilate, and then Pilate gathers all of the Jews, their leaders, the people who were there, And he gives his official verdict, and he says, Look, I've examined Jesus, Herod's examined Jesus, neither of us have found any guilt, no evidence of the charges you've brought against this man. But Pilate says, You know what, I'll throw you a bone. I'll punish him, which meant to beat him lightly. They would often do that for minor offenses, which still would have been unjust, by the way, because Jesus had done no offense. But Pilate's thinking, I can tell you guys are mad at this guy, so I'll beat him up a little bit, satisfy your your wrath, and then I'm going to let him go. But the people will have none of it. And in an eerie parallel, an echo even, of Peter's threefold denial, Pilate tries to defend Jesus' innocence three times. And three times the Jews insist, No, crucify Him, kill Him, condemn Him, Pilate. We don't want Him. And at last they say, Give us Barabbas instead. And this is the detail that shows the deeper meaning of what's going on here. It is clear by now, Jesus is being condemned by the guilty. There is no justice or righteousness or equity at all in this trial. It is a complete kangaroo court. And yet, here we see why it is happening and why He submits to His Father's will here. He is doing it to be condemned for the guilty, not just by them. You see, Barabbas deserved to die, not Jesus. Barabbas was guilty of stirring the people up in insurrection, not Jesus. And Barabbas was guilty of murder not Jesus. And yet Barabbas will go free and Jesus will be condemned. And as shocking and as revolting as that is to us, that is exactly what Jesus did for you and for me. We deserve to be condemned, not Jesus. We are guilty of sin, not Jesus. And yet we go free and Jesus is condemned, not us. Luke spells that irony out for us in verse 25. He says very clearly, he says, Pilate released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, and for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. What we see in this part of the story is that sin and rebellion and unbelief and hardness of heart, these things put Jesus on the cross. And yet Jesus willingly went to the cross in his abject, utter humiliation to set sinners and rebels and unbelievers like us free. And we know what is coming next. The cross now looms large on the horizon. And we know we'll, we'll go and we'll reflect on that on Good Friday in a couple of days here. But before we get there, we need to pause and reflect on this part of the story. It's so easy just to jump from here to the cross, but we need to pause and think, what is the Lord revealing to us to shape our lives today from this part of the story, from Jesus' condemnation for our sake? And we can take away quite a bit. Consider again how the world has responded to Jesus in this story. The Jewish leaders reject him. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about facts. They don't want any of that. They reject Jesus because they want what they want. Herod mocks Jesus. He thinks Jesus is a joke. He doesn't think any of this is serious. He's only trying to entertain himself. And Pilate, Pilate caves in. He hands Jesus over even though Pilate has said he's innocent three times, four times really, if you count his first, first verdict. But for Pilate, his own political convenience and his own personal comfort outweighs the call for justice. And so he caves in. And yet Jesus suffers all these things, all of the world's scorn. And he doesn't waste his breath trying to correct them for the wrongdoing here because he is well prepared to be faithful to the end To be the righteous king who is condemned for our sake, in our place. And that is good news for us. But we have to remember the question we asked at the beginning of the sermon. What does this set us free from? Well, Jesus being condemned here for our sake, in our place, it sets us free from the condemnation that our sins deserve. But in our heart of hearts, we also want it to set us free from the world's scorn. We want it to set us free from being made fun of. We want it to set us free from suffering with Jesus. But it doesn't. Luke 21 verse 17, he told his disciples that we will be hated by all for his name's sake. And we don't like that. We want Jesus not just to be condemned in our place, but we want his suffering to mean that we get a life of comfort and bliss, both now and in eternity when he makes all things new. We would so much rather be like Herod, wouldn't we? Just amusing ourselves to death. We'd rather be like Pilate and be able to bend the truth For our own comfort and our own convenience, rather than suffer when the world doesn't like what we're doing. But those are not options that we have if we're going to live for Jesus' sake. Living for his sake, following him as our king, means that we need to look to him to prepare us for when suffering for his sake comes our way as well. The question we have to ask as we reflect on this part of the story is how does Jesus' condemnation for our sake help us prepare? To suffer for his sake. Now, suffering for Jesus' sake, this is a very uncomfortable idea, but it is a biblical reality all over the pages of Scripture. Listen to how Paul describes it here in Philippians 1, verses 27 through 30. This passage comes right before our congregational response from Philippians 2. And listen to how Paul talks about preparing for this suffering. He clues us into how we can do this in Christ. Paul writes, but also suffer for His sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have." Paul teaches us a whole lot about what it means to suffer for Christ's sake here. On the one hand, he's teaching us this isn't something we have to go out and search for. It comes our way in the Lord's providence. Suffering for Jesus' sake is different from the suffering of, you know, just natural disaster in a fallen world or suffering from our own folly and sin. Suffering for Jesus' sake means the world turns on us simply because we're following Jesus. And Paul was telling the Philippians, you've seen that happen to me as I've been a minister of the gospel, and now it had come their way as well. And Paul was helping them prepare for it and endure it. And notice what he says. He says the way to prepare for suffering for Jesus' sake is by living together for his sake. He tells them grow together and stand firm in one spirit and live with one mind, striving side-by-side for the sake of the gospel. Paul's point to us is clear. If we want to be prepared to suffer for Jesus' sake, we have to live together as Jesus' body, as those who have all been set free from condemnation in Him, and set free to live for Him. And we know this. We feel it in our bones. We've experienced it intensely this past year. We know we need each other. We need each other when our marriages hit rough patches and living out our vows faithfully for Jesus' sake is hard. And we need people to support us and our spouses as we press on and fight for reconciliation together. We need each other when our children accuse us of being the reason why they don't believe in God and they turn on us and we want to give up. We want to turn on them instead. We need the church to surround us and support us and help us parent faithfully, living out the vows we've all taken when our children are baptized. That's suffering and we need each other then. We need each other when we're isolated at work and people turn on us and and shun us because of things we won't say or things we won't do. We need the church to be our family who stands by us then. And we need each other when we pursue reconciliation in relationships where it's hard and where we know we're gonna come out battered and bruised along the way because we're the only one who right now wants to fight for it but we know it glorifies God when we pursue that reconciliation. We can't do that alone. We need each other. And with each other, we can, by the power of the Holy Spirit, endure such suffering for Jesus' name. And notice then how all of this ties together. Because the number one reason why we don't press further into our life together as Christians is because we're scared. The reason we're so often scared to be vulnerable, to open up to somebody else, is because we're afraid that once they know us, really know us, how messy we are, how bad our sin is, That they won't love us anymore. They won't even pretend to like us. They'll condemn us. But if Jesus was condemned for our sake, if He has set every Christian free from condemnation, from the Lord's condemnation, which is the only condemnation that matters, then we do not need to be afraid of being known by one another. Because there's nothing that we could say to someone that can break us free of that reality of freedom in Christ. And so, Jesus' condemnation for our sake sets us free of those fears so that we can truly be known and loved, not just by Him, as if that's not good enough, but we can be known and loved by one another. We can become His body and love each other well. This is great hope for us, and we need this. This is how we grow as a church. We can't be lone wolf Christians trying to take on the world on our own. When we do that, it makes us bitter. That's why so often the things Christians are known for saying online are are, are rough. Because we feel attacked, because we try to build up our own walls and dig our own moats and we feel alone and we know we've been sent out amongst wolves and suddenly we start having teeth like the wolves instead of looking like sheep who follow Jesus. But when we're together as the flock of Christ, as the body of Christ, we can support each other. We can challenge each other when necessary, but we can stand side by side and we can endure the worst of the world's scorn turned on us because we follow Jesus and we can do it for His sake and we can live in such a way that the Spirit can work in and through us to show the world something far more beautiful than people just throwing hand grenades at each other, trying to out-condemn one another. We can be a place where people find freedom in Christ, freedom from the guilt and the condemnation that we all deserve and freedom to live for truth, for beauty, for Jesus. And so that's what Luke 22, 66 through 23, 25 teaches us. It teaches us that we get to live and we get to even suffer when it's time for that for Christ's sake because He was condemned for our sake. And again, these are heavy things. So let's close with what Paul tells us in Romans 8, 34, 35, and 37. These verses remind us that as frightening as suffering may be, The freedom we have from condemnation in Christ is so much greater, and the hope of glory we have is so much better. He says this, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No. In all these things we, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And amen that that is true. May our freedom from condemnation in Christ help us see how free we really are to live for His sake, to live together as His people, and to be prepared to when He calls us to endure suffering for His sake as well, to do that in a way that brings Him glory. And draws people near. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank You that You were willing to be condemned by the guilty. You didn't deserve any of their scorn. You didn't deserve this, the sentence or the punishment that they, they dished out on You. But You did all of that for us, the guilty, who deserved to be condemned. We praise You. It is marvelous for us to consider how much You love us and for us to consider the great freedom we have that your righteousness defines us, not our sin. And Lord, help us not to let this be a detached idea that doesn't shape the way we live day in and day out throughout the week, but let this set us so free that the way we live is clearly for your sake, that we would draw near to each other as a church who love one another and who aren't afraid to be known because we know that the worst thing that could happen has already fallen on you. Condemnation has fallen on you, not on us. And Lord, please prepare us well, we know that in our church family, there are those of us who are suffering even now for your sake. But Lord, confessionally, we, sometimes we don't know what our brothers and sisters are going through because we don't know each other that well. And So Holy Spirit, please help us. Help us to draw near to each other. Use us to encourage one another, to remind one another of how good life in Christ is. So that even when circumstances are hard and filled with suffering, our eyes are on the horizon, the hope of glory that we have in Him. And it's His name we pray. Amen.